on the morning of Sunday the 26th of December 2004, a magnitude 9.1 earthquake tore across the Indian Ocean region. In the next 12 hours, over 18 countries would be directly impacted from the earthquake and the following tsunami. Hello and welcome to The Disaster Files. I'm your host, Jacob. In this podcast, I'm going to be looking in detail at a variety of geophysical, hydrometeorological or man-made disaster events. With every episode, I'll look at the timeline of the events that occur, delve deep into what caused the event, look at some of the impacts on a variety of scales, as well as the responses to the disaster and what has been learned in response to the disaster event. In this second episode, we are going to be looking at the 2004 Boxing Day earthquake and tsunami, which is one of the deadliest earthquakes and tsunamis in history. Episode 2, 2004 Indian Ocean Boxing Day Earthquake and Tsunami. So before we start looking at the actual event itself, it's really important to understand the geological context of the area of the world that was impacted. The 2004 earthquake was unusually large in geographical and geological extent. So that means where it occurred and the area of which it occurred in was extremely large. An estimated 1,600 kilometres of fault surface ruptured about 15 metres along the subduction zone where the Indian plate subducts under the overriding Burma plate. Now, the actual fault slip itself did not happen instantaneously, but took place in about two phases over several minutes. Seismographs in the area indicate that the first phase involved a rupture about 400 kilometres long and about 100 kilometres wide, 30 kilometres beneath the seabed. This is one of the largest ever ruptures to have been caused by an earthquake. And the rupture proceeded at about 2.8 kilometres a second and it began off the coast of Asai and proceeded in a northwesterly direction for the next 100 or so seconds. After a pause of about another 100 seconds, the rupture continued northwards towards the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. So this was an incredibly large fault rupture. Faults normally will rupture on sort of 100 metre scales, maybe a kilometre or a couple of kilometres. This was going on an extremely large scale, over 1,600 kilometres and over several minutes. That means that several minutes of seismic energy that is being produced. And that means that that shaking, that rumbling of the earth is going to be going on for a long period of time. The northern rupture that started in the second phase towards the Andaman and Nicobar Islands was slower at about 2.1 kilometres a second and it continued north for about another five minutes from where the plate boundaries actually changed from being a subduction zone to a strike slip or conservative boundary. The Indian plate is part of the sort of wider plate known as the Indo-Australian plate which underlies the Indian Ocean and the Bay of Bengal, and it's moving northeast at an average of around 60 millimetres a year, so about 6 centimetres per year. The Indian plate meets the Burma plate, which is a micro plate as part of the Eurasian plate, 
at the Sunder Trench. At this point, the India Plate subducts beneath the Burma Plate, which is where the Nicobar Islands, the Andaman Islands and Northern Sumatra are. As well as a sideways movement of the plate, the 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake resulted in a rise of the seafloor by several metres. Now, this displacement of the seafloor and this movement of the seafloor caused a large column of water to be displaced, and that is what caused the devastating tsunami waves. There was about 30 kilometres cubed of water that was displaced. And the waves radiated outwards along the entire 1,600 kilometre length of the rupture. So that length of the fault, the ground lifted up a little bit by about sort of 10 to 15 metres. That displaced all that ocean water. That water's got to go somewhere. It's got to rise up. And after it's risen up, it's got to come back down again. And that sort of creates that sort of wave, uh, that sort of pulse of a tsunami wave. Now this overall sea floor rise actually reduced the capacity of the Indian Ocean and so one of the long-term impacts that it caused a permanent rise in the global sea levels by an estimated 0.1 millimeters. Now that does not sound like a lot but across the whole planet that is a significant volume of water. So that's sort of the geological context. It's a subduction zone boundary, the energy had been building up, there hadn't been an earthquake or tsunami in this size in hundreds of years, so that energy had been building up over a very significantly uh, long period of time. The rupture was an incredibly large rupture, one of the largest that has ever been recorded, and therefore it was, it was a huge event. Now the actual magnitude of the earthquake was estimated to be about a 9.1 magnitude, some estimations vary, some places say it was a 9, some places go up to a 9.3. The general conclusion is it was a 9.1 earthquake and it started at 7.58 local time. The rumbling lasted for 7 minutes, but because of that displacement of the water, the disaster was only just beginning with that rumbling. And over the coming hours, hundreds of thousands of people would be killed because of the tsunami it would affect and impact countries all across the globe and it was a natural disaster event that really changed millions of people's lives around the world so the tsunami waves didn't occur in the seconds after the initial earthquake Yes, they'd been produced, but actually, in some places, it would have taken up to 12 hours for those tsunami waves to reach. And people may wonder, well, how did these tsunami waves then impact people? Well, one of the big issues was that there was no tsunami warning system in the Indian Ocean. Now, the reason that was is because no one actually expected there to ever be uh, an earthquake of such a large magnitude in the Indian Ocean and a lot of people had only ever focused on how the Pacific Ocean where the uh, ring of fire is would often be the main place where tsunamis would occur. The last major tsunami in the Indian Ocean area was caused by the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa. Now that is obviously a very different source um, than an earthquake and 
again, not every earthquake will produce a large tsunami. So, a couple, sort of three, four months after the Boxing Day tsunami, there was an 8.7 earthquake that hit the same area of the Indian Ocean, but it did not result in a major tsunami. So, it's only really these very specific earthquakes when you have got that uplift of the sea floor where these tsunamis are going to be created. And, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry. And if there had been a tsunami warning system in place, then it would have been a very different story. But there wasn't. And we'll look at how the future would be different in the Indian Ocean a little bit later in the episode. What we're going to do now is that we are going to look at the impacts of the tsunami on some of the main countries that were affected, some of the main areas within those countries that were affected. So we're going to start off with probably the main country that was impacted, and that is Indonesia. The tsunami devastated the coastlines of the Assay province. About 20 minutes after the earthquake occurred, uh, the city of Banda Asai, uh, the closest major city, suffered extremely severe casualties. In this city, about 167,000 people perished. The sea initially receded before the tsunami, and that exposed the seabed. And that prompted lots of locals to get all excited, go and collect stranded fish, explore this brand new area, go and see some of the coral reefs that had been exposed. And lots of people flooded onto the beaches, unaware of what was going to happen. Local eyewitnesses described three large waves appearing in the distance, with the first wave rising gently to the foundation of buildings, followed minutes later by a sudden withdrawal of the sea near the port of Ulilua. This was succeeded by the appearance of two large black-coloured steep waves, which then travelled inland into the capital city as a large turbulent bore. Eyewitnesses described the tsunami as a black giant, a mountain, a wall of water. And video footage actually can reveal that it was a very sort of surging black water because it was so filled with debris. And it was surging by windows of two-story residential houses. Um, and it went as far inland as about 3.2 kilometres. Now, a lot of the problem is, is that the tsunami will encroach that far inland but also it then got to go back out again so that debris that has been swept inland is going to go sweeping back out again now some of the heaviest debris will be deposited but people could potentially be swept back out into the oceans Lokanga, a small coastal community about 13 kilometers southwest of Banda Asai located on a very flat coastal plain in between two rainforest-covered hills and overlooking a large bay, which is really famous for its white sandy beaches and surfing activities, locals reported about 10 to 12 waves of tsunamis, with the second and third waves being the highest and most destructive waves. And again, what they saw here was that temporary uh, recession of the sea, which exposed uh, the beaches, it deposited fish, and exposed coral reefs and so again locals did flock to the beach and then in the distant horizon gigantic black waves about 30 meters high made explosion like sounds as it broke and approached the shore the first wave came rapidly landward 
from the southwest as a turbulent bore about 0.5 to 2.5 meters high. The second and third waves were 15 to 30 meters high at the coastline and they appeared like gigantic surfing waves but taller than coconut trees and mountain-like. The second wave was the largest and it came from west-southwest within five minutes of the first wave. So imagine you're there, you've just been hit by this sort of two meter high tsunami wave and then within five minutes you can see a 30 meter wave approaching. The panic that lots of these people are going to be going through, they're not prepared for this and I can just imagine it being an absolute dire situation. Now the tsunami wave in this area stranded cargo ships, barges, destroyed uh, mining facilities and it reached up to the fourth story of buildings. That's how devastating the tsunami was in the Indonesian area. And along the Indonesian coastline, along the Sumatran coastline, waves were recorded anywhere between sort of one to three meters high up to 30 meters high. Now, tsunami waves are interesting and they will vary in size and it very much depends on the topography and the geomorphology of an area. So a tsunami out in the open ocean where it's incredibly deep, it's often not very high, you know, it's just sort of a little bump of a wave. But as that pulse of water gets close to the land where it starts to shallow up, that wave gets compressed and that's where it increases in size. But also it decreases in speed as well. So the front of the tsunami slows down and so all the water behind it starts to push up and that's where that wall of water gets created. So in places where the water gets very shallow, very quickly, and also when the actual area, so in sort of a bay area, or where it sort of gets compressed even further, where the water gets squeezed even further, then waves are going to be bigger. Whereas if you're on a sort of a very open coastline, often those waves won't be as big, they'll still be devastating because you'll still get that uh, rising of the sea floor but you won't see them being compressed often in as you would in sort of a bay or a fjord like environment. So the next country we are going to look at is probably the second most impacted country and that is the island country of Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is located about 1,700 kilometers from Sumatra and it was ravaged by the tsunami around two hours after the initial earthquake. The tsunami first struck the eastern coastline and subsequently refracted, which sort of means bounced around, the southern point of Sri Lanka. The refracted tsunami waves then inundated the southwestern parts of Sri Lanka after some of its energy was reflected from impacts in the Maldives as well, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. In Sri Lanka, the civilian casualties were second only to those of Indonesia, with approximately 35,000 killed in Sri Lanka by the tsunami. The eastern shores of Sri Lanka were the hardest hit since it faced the epicentre of the earthquake, while the southwestern shores were hit later, but the death toll was just as severe. That's because the southwestern shores are a hotspot for tourists and the fishing industry. 
The degradation of the natural environment in Sri Lanka contributed to the high death tolls. Approximately 90,000 buildings and many wooden houses were destroyed. And when the tsunami actually arrived, unlike what was seen in Indonesia, where the wave was very much a black colour, in Sri Lanka it was a sort of brownie-orange coloured flood. And again, we saw the same thing that happened, where the sea floor, uh, the actual ocean receded, and in Sri Lanka, it exposed as much to one kilometres in places. What happened is then the tsunami waves, often the second and third ones being the most devastating, swept in and would flood large areas of land. It would carry debris and it would sweep away people. Now, the construction of seawalls and breakwaters did manage to reduce the power of waves at some locations, but often they were still not enough. And we've seen in tsunami events since that people have tried to use hard engineering techniques to mitigate the impacts of tsunamis, but they don't always work. Now, one of the tragedies that happened in Sri Lanka was that a regular passenger train operating between Maradana and Matara was derailed and overturned by the tsunami waves. And this claimed at least 1,700 lives. And this is the single largest rail disaster death toll in history. Estimates based on the state of the shoreline and high water marks on nearby buildings place a tsunami at around 7.5 to 9 metres above sea level and about 2 to 3 metres higher than the top of the train. So it's very easy to see how easily this train would have been deluged by this tsunami wave. Now, across Sri Lanka, the tsunami waves were recorded between about 10 metres in height at maximum to about 4 metres uh, sort of at the lowest. It is likely that there was a bit more variation, but just judging from sort of looking at the disasters and sort of eyewitness accounts, that is the estimates for tsunami waves in Sri Lanka. The next country to look at is Thailand. The tsunami travelled eastward through the Andaman Sea and hit the southwestern coast of Thailand again about two hours after the earthquake. Thailand is uh, sort of located about 500 kilometres from the epicentre um, and the region that was impacted first was very popular with tourists because of Christmas time. Lots of people, lots of tourists were on their winter holidays. Many of these tourists were caught off guard as they had no prior warning. There was no warning system there. And the tsunami also hit during high tide. Major locations damaged included the western shores of Phuket Islands, the resort town of Kaolak in Phai Nang province, uh, the coastal provinces of Krabi, Satun and Rangong and Trang, and small offshore islands like Korachiyai, the Fifi Islands, the Surin Islands, and the Similan Archipelago. In Thailand, approximately 8,000 people were killed. The province of Phagnaya was the most affected area in Thailand, and several resort towns around there that are famous for their golden sandy beaches, hotels overlooking the Andaman Sea and hilly rainforests were really sort of popular with tourists at the time and again suddenly the seafloor receded. The sea receded and it exposed the seafloor 
And so again, tourists and locals ran towards the coastline to gather fish. And then once again, the tsunami appeared in the distance. And it appeared as this turbulent bore and it very quickly inundated lots of people. And the tsunami almost appeared as sort of a white horizontal line in the distance and it just gradually got bigger. It engulfed jet skiers, police boats, and it reached as far as two kilometres inland. Now, the tsunami had a lot of variation in these areas um, because of offshore uh, geomorphology. So areas where they had offshore coral reefs and shallow sea floor caused a much higher build-up of the tsunami and caused the tsunami to sort of pile up on top of each other. Um, so in Kowalak, this was the case in Thailand. Now there are huge variations in the size of the tsunami in Thailand. Some places recorded tsunami waves as low as 2 metres, uh, sort of along the eastern coast of the Phuket Island. But in one place, it was recorded as being about 19.6 metres. That just shows the incredible variation that these tsunami waves can have, just depending on the morphology of an area. The next country to look at is India. The tsunami reached the states of Andhra Pradesh and Tamil Nadu along the southeastern coastline of India, again about two hours after the earthquake. At the same time it arrived in the state of Kerala on the southwestern coast, there were two to five tsunamis that also coincided with local high tides. Along the coast of Tamil Nadu, the 13km marina beach in Chennai was battered by the tsunami which swept across the beach, taking morning walkers unaware. The tsunami arrived as a large wall of water and it was sort of a 10 metre high black muddy tsunami. In the city of Karaikal, 492 lives were lost. Now, the city of Pondicherry was actually protected by sea walls and was left relatively unscathed, which is sort of showing that actually sea walls can be a protection against these walls of water, but they aren't always the most effective. The worst affected area in India was in the Tamil Nadu region of Nagapatinam, and there was nearly 6,000, uh, just over 6,000 fatalities, which was caused by a 5-metre tsunami. And most of the people that were killed were members of the fishing community. The sort of heights of the tsunami, again, there's some variation going from about 5 metres to about 2 metres. And that sort of just depends, again, on the morphology of the areas. In the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, there was a lot of devastation because they were actually so very close to the epicentre of the earthquake. And in some cases, it just took minutes to devastate uh, the islands. The Andaman Islands were only moderately affected, but the island of Little Andaman and Nicobar Islands were much more severely affected. And tsunami waves varied from about 1 metre to 12 metres in height, again, just depending on the topography of the area. In the Maldives, uh, which are about 2,500 kilometres away from the epicentre, the Maldives sort of had a variety of uh, impacts, 
but mostly the tsunami didn't have as much of an impact that was first feared. Now, that was due to the offshore coral reefs and deep channels that separated individual atolls, and also the fact that when the tsunami arrived, it arrived at low tide, which helped decrease the power of tsunami in lots of places. There was even some concern that parts of the country might become permanently submerged and uninhabitable. The maximum size of the tsunami was 4 metres on Villefushi Island, and it arrived again about two hours after the main earthquake. So, we're coming into our last sort of couple of countries now. Somalia is one of those countries. The tsunami travelled 5,000 kilometres west across open ocean before striking the East African country. There were around 289 fatalities reported in the Horn of Africa, and there was about four tsunami waves. The highest death toll was in the town of Hafun, with 19 dead and 160 people presumed missing out of its 5,000 inhabitants. This was the highest number of casualties in a single African town, and the largest tsunami death toll in a single town to the west of the Indian subcontinent. Other countries also directly impacted were Myanmar, where the tsunami caused only moderate damage and arrived about two to five and a half hours after the earthquake. Although the country's western Andaman Sea coastline lies at the proximity of the rupture zone, there were smaller tsunamis than the neighbouring Thai coastline, because the main tsunami source did not extend to the Andaman Islands. The tsunami also reached Malaysia, mainly on the northern states, and the reason why it wasn't affected so much is because the full force of the tsunami um, sort of hit Sumatra, and it was almost shielded by Sumatra. Bangladesh escaped uh, major damage and deaths because the water displaced by the sort of strike-slip fault uh, was relatively little on the northern section of the rupture. Um, and in Yemen, there was two people killed uh, with a two-metre-high tsunami reported. But again, no major impacts. The tsunami was detected in the southern parts of East Africa, where there was rough seas reported. Um, there was fatalities in Kenya, in Seychelles, in Tanzania. And the furthest away where two people were killed as a direct result of the tsunami was in South Africa. The tsunami was also felt in Western Australia. However, there was no loss of life. There was only some economic damage with some boats losing their moorings. Now, these were sort of the countries that were very much directly impacted. But there were countries all over the world that had some sort of impact with citizens of that country being killed. And I'm going to read through the entire list of those countries now. Argentina had two citizens die. Australia had 26 citizens die. Austria had 86 citizens die. Belgium had 11. Brazil had 2. Canada had 15. Chile had 2. China had 3. Colombia had 1. Croatia had 1. Czechia had 8. Denmark had 45. Estonia had 3. Finland had 179. France had 95. Gabon had 1. Germany had 539. Hong Kong had 38. Ireland had 4, Israel had 6, Italy had 54, Japan had 37, Luxembourg had 2, Malaysia had 9, Malta had 1, Mexico had 2, the Netherlands had 36, New Zealand had 7, Norway had 84, the Philippines had 8, Poland had 1, 
Portugal had four, Russia had nine, Singapore had nine, South Africa had 17, South Korea had 17, Spain had two, Sweden had 543, and that was the largest in total out of all uh, countries not directly impacted. Switzerland had 106, Taiwan had two, Turkey had one, the United Kingdom had 143, Ukraine had 38, United States had 33, and Vietnam had one. Out of sort of the quarter of a million people killed, 2,233 were citizens of other countries, but the majority were citizens killed in their own countries. The majority was in Indonesia. The level of damage to the economy um, was minor in compared to the devastation with how many people were killed. Um, and a lot of the main impacts actually from the economy came around from the fishing industry, where there was obviously lots of devastation, lots of people within the fishing industry were killed. And then also the tourism industry as well. So lots of those people that were killed from countries not directly impacted were tourists and it actually put people off from going into these areas because these areas a needed to recover and lots of sort of the actual tourist facilities were destroyed but also people weren't too sure if they could feel safe in these areas as well in case something similar happened like this again So, responses to this disaster were widespread. People from all over the world were really coming together um, to help provide aid. And over $14 US billion in aid was provided by nations all over the world. Now, one of the reasons why there was such a quick response from humanitarian and government agencies was because there was a real worry around epidemics forming so spread of diseases such as cholera diphtheria dysentery typhoid hepatitis a hepatitis b it was really worried that they would spread round really quickly and that would increase the death toll significantly as well as also famine and hunger spreading round as well but because of a really quick response from humanitarian and international government agencies that impact was very much reduced looking at the countries that pledged lots of money so it was countries like australia germany japan canada norway the netherlands and the united states the world bank also offered uh, a significant portion of money as well now there was some controversy behind this there was some controversy that some countries actually hadn't been given any foreign aid so Sri Lanka reported it received no foreign uh, government aids and that only foreign individuals had been generous. Uh, there was controversies that some countries were sort of refusing aid from certain countries but accepting it from others as well. Donations from the public were incredibly large and actually in countries like the United Kingdom the amount donated by the public actually was higher than that given by the government. So about 330 million uh, British pounds was raised by the public, whereas the UK government only gave 75 million. 
and so it was sort of quite incredible to see all these um, citizens of the world coming together to really help try and respond effectively to this disaster and the fact that it did impact countries all over the world as well I think made it real realistic for a lot of uh, British people especially. Now the reason why this disaster resonated with so many people around the world was that in total about 50 countries were affected only 11 which were directly affected and a lot of the indirect ones was because people were killed who were either tourists or expatriates in the country and it's one of the first disasters where it, it, the disaster did not recognize borders of the world or borders of the countries um, and it in fact affected us as global citizens and it helped really put into context people's risk and vulnerability the fact that nearly three billion people and almost half the world of the world's population live in coastal zones which are prone to all different types of hazards whether that be tsunamis or tropical cyclones or storms or floods and these people often do not have a choice but to live there they don't have somewhere else they can go and move to and there are also small countries which are barely a few meters above sea level the fact that because of climate change and sea level rise countries are only going to be getting sort of lower closer to sea level and long-term planning really needs to be started considered by governments but lots of people just do not have the choice public awareness and education needs to be improved and has been improved as well and i'm going to talk a little bit about a 10 year old girl from england who actually saved people because she had the education behind it so this girl, Tilly Smith, realised the signs of a tsunami. The fact that the sea receded very quickly, uh, the sea was bubbling as well when it was receding. She had learned that in her geography lessons uh, back at school. And she told her parents and the parents alerted people in the hotel, alerted people on the beach. And that beach didn't record any deaths because someone was educated someone had had the opportunities to learn that and so they knew the signs and they knew they needed to get the hell out of there now indigenous populations as well so a tribal chief in thailand saved more than 1800 people because he recognized through his people's teachings that something was wrong something was going to happen and they needed to get to high grounds and so it shows that it's really key that education will save lives and will help protect people and also property as well. And also the fact that early warning systems. Now an early warning system has been put in place in the Indian Ocean now. So that if there is an earthquake event of this scale again or even a smaller scale. They have got the technology to say whether a tsunami is at high risk or not. And to be able to go and let people know get people evacuated from the area now it's not perfect it's not going to be a foolproof system and there is often quite isolated communities which would struggle to get the evacuation knowledge or the early warning knowledge that they need but it is a step in the right direction and if this disaster was to happen again 
then the chance are it would not have such a high death toll associated with it because there is an early warning system in place. Now, one of the last things that I really want to talk about is how the media have a social responsibility to promote prevention. We see it all the time where journalists like to over-exaggerate the impacts that disasters may have and almost every sort of couple of months there's a big media uh, resurgence of how a super volcano is going to hit us and kill everyone in the world and the media is often responsible for causing some of the deaths in these hazards uh, and disaster events and especially now where social media has got such prominence in everybody's lives everybody's everyday life social media and the media need to play a role in essential early warning systems and to not over exaggerate and to give clear concise and accurate information and that's something that uh, i'm going to touch upon in a sort of a couple of episodes time um when we look at a hazard event which it had people were killed because of irresponsible use of social media um and sort of almost i hate the saying this but fake news was being spread around and it caused people to be killed as a consequence of that so thank you very much for listening to this episode of the disaster files um it's a long episode but this disaster event is one that a lot of people are familiar with it is one of my sort of one of the first memories of a natural disaster event happening i remember hearing about this and i was about eight years old and just being struck down by the horror um of how this of what was happening to people um and i know a lot of people out there will remember when this happened as well so thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, please consider subscribing, uh, leaving a review if you can. Um, it's just going to help the podcast grow. And if you have any feedback in regards to sound quality or any suggesting of any disaster events, um, or just want to talk about some of these uh, amazing events, then please get in touch with me. You can contact me at thedisasterfilespod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at The Disaster Files and I really hope you uh, stick around and uh, episodes come out about every two weeks, give or take. This episode's a little bit late, I do apologise. That's just due to stuff being crazy in my uh, work life at the minute and uh, in a few episodes time I'm going to do a bonus episode which will be a get to know your host episode and you can submit questions to me on uh, email or instagram if not i will do what i love to do and just talk about myself uh for a sort of uh, 20 minutes or so uh so i hope you all are doing well and uh, stay safe and see you in the next one bye